It's me. I'm not generally a fan of westerns or anything, like it's not a genre with which I am all that familiar. However, I do tend to really like digging through newspaper archives from that time in history because I feel like the wild wild west was truly wild in the sense that some very weird shit went down and it's stuff that you just can't make up. I mean, it reads like fiction, except that you really couldn't write this stuff. So I've been sitting on this particular story for a while, because ever since I read it for the first time, I've just sort of been thinking about it like at least once a week, kind of chuckling to myself when I do. But I am putting up the show today specifically because it marks an important day in the story. In many ways, it was the beginning. This is the tale of a man named Charles E. Bowles, who actually went by many names in his life, though his friends called him Charlie, and he would come to call himself, as with the wanted posters for his arrest, Black Bart. Now, Charlie had been born in England and moved to New York with his family as a young lad because they had purchased some farmland upstate, and thus he was raised as a farm boy and received a basic education and was apparently very athletic. It's said that as a young man, he was the best elbow wrestler in Jefferson County. His legacy could have started and ended right there, but no. Young Charlie boy had greater mischief to undertake. Like most men of his era, he fought in the Civil War and was fortunate enough to survive and return home relatively unscathed and with honor. But upon his return to the farm and the life that he led there, presumably having seen some pastures other than his own, Charlie started to get restless. Now, by this point, he had married a woman named Mary, and they had four children. But life on the farm was proving to be both boring and not all that lucrative. He was in search of not greener pastures, but golden pastures. The glint out west had caught his eye, and after asking his wife if it was cool with her, and I mean, what was she gonna say? No? He and two of his brothers set out to join the California gold rush. The trip would prove to be ill-fated, though, because both of his brothers fell ill and died shortly after their second round, and he hadn't exactly hit the gold jackpot. Meanwhile, his wife and children had settled into their new home. They had relocated to Illinois just before he had set out to go prospecting, and he wrote to them regularly. Until he didn't. His wife received a letter from him in August of 1871, in which he mentioned in passing that he'd had a bit of a kerfuffle with some people from Wells Fargo, which, if you don't know, at the time, were the company that was tasked with kind of taking all that California gold and transporting it hither and thither in stagecoaches. Now, as you might expect, they got robbed a lot. Wells Fargo was also in the business of expansion, and the encounter that Charlie had had with them came when he was working in a mine that he'd purchased out west. Wells Fargo wanted to buy the land upon which Charlie's mine sat, and he was like, you know what, thanks, but no thanks, I think I'll keep it if you don't mind, and Wells Fargo did mind. They cut off his water supply, which drove him off the land and he was forced to basically forfeit this one asset that he had. Now he told his wife this story and wrote in the letter simply, 
I am going to take steps. Which doesn't seem all that ominous by today's standards, but I'm guessing that in 1871 that might have been the equivalent of those greedy motherfuckers stole my land and now I am gonna exact some sick revenge on their asses. On August 25th, 1871, Mary received another letter in which Charlie made it seem as though he had straightened things out and was headed home, but he never showed up on their doorstep in Illinois and the letters stopped coming. Naturally, she assumed that he died. Maybe in a way he had. But the man Charlie Bowles would become known to in history was just beginning to emerge. A man in a long coat and a bowler hat, a finely manicured bushy mustache, and very clear, piercing blue-gray eyes. He wore expensive clothing and was only ever spotted reclining and dining at the finest hotels and restaurants in California. A bit of a lush, perhaps, but regarded as an overall polite and friendly old dandy. Even when he began his life of crime, he was polite about it. When Charlie started robbing stagecoaches, he did so with a certain style and flair. He quickly gained a reputation for a couple of things. First of all, being a, quote, gentleman bandit, never firing a weapon, and always being on foot as opposed to horseback as most robbers of the era would have been. Charlie, it seemed, was afraid of horses, so therefore he only robbed on foot. He would throw a sack with eyes cut out over his head, though with the bowler hat still on, which to me seems, I don't know, kind of like a very comical image, but I mean, you can't say he was not committed to his look. And then he would approach the stagecoaches thusly. Dressed sharply and walking with a fashionable cane, he would simply yell up to the driver to throw down the cash box or gold or whatever they had. Or, you know, he'd like fight them. Except that, like, he never really did that. And in fact, this was kind of how these robberies went down in general. If the driver said that these boxes were empty, the robber would just sort of be like, oh, okay, sorry to bother you, and carry on. Of course, if they found out later that the driver had lied, then they could go back and kill them. So, you know, generally, everybody just kind of, like, took each other's word for it. Charlie also didn't get a reputation for being greedy, and in fact it was kind of the opposite. He gained a reputation for stealing only exactly what he felt he needed, and would go so far as to give things back or not accept other valuables from folks who were being held up in the stagecoach. So especially this was the case when women were involved and they would try to hand over their jewels or coin purses. And he was also known to be quite conversational in these interactions, never used foul language, and was actually pretty friendly. He would often kind of like make small talk with the passengers and say reassuring things like, I'll be through here in a minute and on my way, as he was like simultaneously aiming a gun at the driver who was scrambling to throw down his lockbox. Now, Charlie robbed only periodically, but with pretty good deal of consistency, and generally only from Wells Fargo coaches as they were with whom he had a grudge. And there were like 30 of these robberies that were attributed to him over the course of several years, and ultimately he made off with something like $18,000 in Wild West money, which would have been a tidy some back then, and that certainly would have permitted his fancy-ass lifestyle. Now, what he ultimately has become really known for, in addition to, like, his aesthetic, actually only occurred in two of the dozens of robberies that he completed. Twice, he left behind clues in the form of these, like, taunting poems that he wrote and signed Black Bart, which may or may not have actually come from a short story about a stagecoach robber that had been in newspapers or, like, in a periodical, like, you know, a decade prior, which he probably read. But the first appeared at the 
the scene of a robbery in August of 1877, where he wrote, quote, I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor, and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of bitches. Now the second verse read a little more like the lyrics of early 2000s emo bands, and it was left at the site of his July 25th holdup in 1878, where he wrote, quote, Here I lay me down to sleep, to wait the coming morrow, perhaps success, perhaps defeat, and everlasting sorrow. Let come what will, I'll try it on, my condition can't be worse. And if there's money in that box, tis money in my purse. Now, Charlie, the poet bandit, the gentleman bandit, Black Bart, eluded capture for some time, despite the fact that he was kind of gaining notoriety. Descriptions of robberies that were ultimately attributed to him included tidbits like this description of him, which was the very first that sheriffs had. It was given by a 14-year-old girl who was present when he robbed a coach in Mendocino County in October of 1878. She said, quote, he had graying brown hair, missing two of his front teeth, deep-set piercing blue eyes under heavy eyebrows, slender hands, and intellectual in conversation, well flavored with polite jokes. Other accounts over the years sort of support that he was a pithy son of a bitch even when he wasn't dropping verse. One of my favorite stories was in October of 1881, when Charlie was robbing a stagecoach driver named Horace Williams, who apparently asked him, how much do you make? And Charlie responded, not very much for the chances I take. And I'm like, how is that not a lyric from a Bob Dylan song? Like, I literally think that that is a line in a Bob Dylan song. Alas, his reign of entertainment and thievery couldn't go on forever. He was finally caught in November of 1883, having actually come full circle and was back at the site of his very first robbery, which was a place called Funk Hill. Now he was wounded during this holdup, having been shot in the hand, and he left behind the bloodied handkerchief that he had used to try to staunch the bleeding, which is like, I don't know, how to be a criminal 101. Don't leave any trace behind, but especially not your personal effects or your blood. And I mean, given this was pre-forensic blood spatter or DNA analysis, but it wasn't pre, let's see if anyone knows who makes these handkerchiefs analysis, like some Sherlock Holmes shit right there. And indeed, that was how the Wells Fargo detective, and Wells Fargo did have detectives, discovered Black Bart's true identity. Now basically this detective called all the laundries in San Francisco and was like, do you happen to know what dapper gentleman owns this hanky? And finally one of them was like, mm, yeah, it's the guy in that boarding house over there who says he's a mining engineer, but like, I don't know, he always seems to be on a business trip whenever a Wells Fargo robbery happens, so... And from there, Charlie was captured, and he initially denied that he was Black Bart, and when he did finally confess, he actually only admitted to robberies that happened before 1879, because he thought that the statute of limitations would be up on them, but he was wrong. And the police report wrote of him that he was a person of great endurance, exhibited genuine wit under the most trying circumstances and was extremely proper and polite in behavior. Excuse profanity. Even still, he was convicted and sentenced to six years in prison, though he was let out early because he had been such a model prisoner. No surprise there. And when he was released, reporters flocked to the jail and started asking him questions, the first of which was if he planned to return to robbing stagecoaches, to which he responded, no gentlemen, I'm through with crime. And then another reporter asked in follow-up if that meant that maybe he would go back to writing poetry, to which he responded, now didn't you hear me say I am through with crime? 
I don't know, that's like some Oscar Wilde shit right there. I don't know. He could have had a writing career. But you know, maybe he did. Maybe he became a ghostwriter and we don't know about it. Maybe he was a great literary mind and we just don't know because after that, we don't actually know what became of old Black Bart. Now, his wife eventually heard this whole story and some say that he did go on to like write to her and try to rekindle things, but obviously she had moved on. Some people say that Charlie moved to New York City and just kind of quietly lived out the rest of his life anonymously. And others say that he was actually paid off by Wells Fargo and lived somewhere on a pension from them quite comfortably for the remainder of his life. But the last time anyone saw him alive was February 28, 1888, at which time he checked out of a hotel in the San Joaquin Valley and strode off, disappearing into the crowd, never to be seen or heard from again. Kind of like that final shot of Hannibal Lecter disappearing into the crowd in the last scene of The Silence of the Lambs. 